Father, thank you for a chance to examine your word. We find tremendous comfort in it, Lord. We find truth in a, in a world full of apostasy and false teaching and uh, humanists run, a, run amok, Lord. And that's the world we live in. But in the Bible, we see that as well. We see where sin dominates, but your mercy is more. And so as we study this tonight, may you encourage us to walk in the righteousness that you have birthed us in. We are new creatures. We have gained your righteousness through your death, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that we would be humbled at these uh, texts that are difficult to study, but yet remind us that sin is ever crouching. That we would be men and women that live for Jesus in private and public. And so, Lord, we pray you'd burn these things on our hearts today. We do think of Rickonnells today. Our hearts are heavy, Lord, as Kristen is with her mom now. We don't know if she is with you yet or not, but we know that time is near. And so, we pray you would strengthen Kristen and her sister and the rest of the family, Lord. We pray for Mama B this, this evening as she is at the doctors now. May you give them wisdom to see what's going on there, Lord. Pray for others who have fallen, um, are re- trying to recover. Um, Linda and Hilda and others, Lord. Um, please heal them, Lord, and give them strength. We love them dearly. They, we know they want to be here with us. Um, so continue to strengthen them, Lord. Father, listen now as we preach your word may it be glorifying to you in jesus name amen well i think this is the first time i've ever titled a sermon like this if you have your notes it's called sex lies deception and the presence of god you really don't think you'd see those things together but i think they're very clear in this text i want to remind you as we go in this that it is really clear as we study the scriptures and then examine our lives that what we truly believe about Christ and his word dictates our behavior. You can say you believe something. You can quote things. You can attend things. But ultimately, something dictates your behavior. And we pray that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we would continue to die to sin and flesh which has, as we'll see today, has an amazing power over man. And so we want to encourage you um, as we go through this. This is a very explicit text. Both these chapters we're going to try to go through tonight. Um, And yet they show us how wicked man can be and how great the mercy of God is. And so we'll look for both those themes. Number one, there's several points I'll be moving through here quickly, if you have the notes. The grace of God in the line of Christ. I start with this short, quick point just to give an umbrella to this whole thing. Chapter 38, as we get into this, is in direct contrast. Because what it highlights here is the unrighteousness of Judah compared to the righteousness of Joseph. We see Joseph in chapter 37. 
we, we talked about that last week, and he did what was right. He honored his father. He, he was merely sharing what God had shown him. God had spoken to him, and he wanted to share those things, and he was hated for those things. He was righteous in his behavior, but his brother's behavior is, is extremely unrighteous. And what I believe God's word is doing here is it's showing us the contrast between them. And in God's word, particularly as we think about the nation of Israel here, God's word is showing us that the nation was never built on man's righteousness. And it's important to understand that. And neither is you, neither is your righteousness built upon your own. It's built upon God's. And so the grace of God in the line of Christ, because when you study this, we're going to see a person appear at the end of this first chapter who is in the direct lineage of Christ and, and, and this person's coming about in the most horrible circumstances. But God is gracious and he protects that line despite what men do. Well, let's look at the text. Number two, generational godlessness. I, I called this one. Look at chapter 38, 1 through 5. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adalmanite whose name was Hira. Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shuha, and he took her and went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Ohan. And she bore another son and named him Shelah, and it was in Chavez that she bore him. Now, sometime during the early years of Joseph's slavery, Genesis, the Genesis record moves us back to the Shechem area where the boys are at. And here we begin to see while Joseph is being sold into slavery and probably now uh, showing his character in Potiphar's home before he will become the one who runs that whole place Judah has made a move he's left the family notice it says that he departed from his brothers and he's moved to Adama here now this is a Canaanite village that's important to understand um, it's roughly about eight to ten miles northwest of where the family ranch would have been and he's he's moved off by himself and chapter 38 contains very disturbing account of what took place there Judah departs from his brothers. He visits this Adalmanite um, whose name is Hira. Uh, and the text gives the idea that Joseph kind of breaks away from his brothers and he begins to lean on this friendship of this uh, Adalmanite named Hira. Soon, Judah gets together with this daughter of uh, Shua who is a Canaanite. And so now he's engaged in a sexual relationship with a Canaanite. In the language of the text, it's interesting, and remember, these are narratives, so we're, we're, we're t covering big groups of time, and we're, we're covering concepts sometimes as we go here, but in the language in the text, it implies that Judah does not marry, but simply just moves in with her and begins to have children. Notice verse 6 and 7. Now Judah took a wife, this word is... Um, uh, 
uh, this could be used for woman or wife here, and we think it is a wife that he's taken here. So Judah took a wife for Ur for his firstborn son. So you can see time's gone by now. He's old enough now to be married, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Verse 8, and then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so he went into his brother's wife. He wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But this, but what, excuse me, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord so he, God, took his life also. Well, there's this relationship. Through this relationship of Judah, these three sons are now produced. Ur is the firstborn. He's named, his name is called the Watcher. It's interesting, by Judah. Onan's the middle son, and he's named the strong one, and he's called this by his mother. Uh, Shelah is, is the last son, He's also named by his mother, and it is while Judah is in another city, this takes place. And this may imply that Judah may have already left this woman and was living by himself. It's, this, is a, this is not a good relationship. This is nothing God would sanction. But Ur follows um, his father's rebellious life. You can see that, and doubtlessly aided by his Canaanite mother who brought in all of that kind of godless, pagan, immoral living. And he lives a wicked life before the Lord. And the Bible says there in verse 7 that the Lord took his life. Reject, he rejected God. He rejected the principles that God had laid down. And God took his life. And it was interesting. It's just like his name, Watcher. God was carefully watching. And Ur did not live to see offspring from his wife. Tamar um, notice in the text has been selected by Judah for his son Ur so he chose a wife for her this is common this was the way things were done um, the dads the fathers picked wives for their sons but here he picked a, a pagan woman for his son well part maybe here part of Ur's wickedness may be the rejection of Tamar he didn't honor his father. He, he didn't do what he was supposed to do and take her and, and love her as God would intend her to do. And, and possibly that is, that's why God took his life. But whatever the case, you have to understand now, Tamar is now a widow. She's rejected and despised in this society, in this culture, and has little hope of any security or a normal life from the family of Judah. Look at verse 8 through 10. Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform a duty of your brother-in-law and raise up offspring from him. Well, Ur's dead now, so Judah orders Onan, the, the next son, to raise up offspring from your brother. And so there was, there was order to marriage. The older brother got married. He had children. That now gave a license for the next son to marry and have children. But that son did not marry. So that son, that older brother was married and had children. In case he couldn't have children, the younger brother, or he died. In this, in, in this case, his brother was supposed to bring up the offspring. Now, 
So Ur's dead, Judah's ordered to do that, but I mean Onan's ordered to do that, but notice Onan refuses his duty. It, it's, it's displeasing to the Lord, the Bible says. And the verse is graphic, but, but Onan's flagrant rebellion, and I want you to think about this, because you might have a different view of Tamar when we get done with this, further humiliates and isolates Tamar. And because of all this, You'll notice in the text, God takes Onan's life too. And now there's two dead sons. You have to, you know, this stuff is a little bit where you've got to read and find some people who have studied this more depthly, but most scholars have uncovered that this was a family responsibility that went all the way back to King Ur of the Chaldeans. This would have been in the time of the birth of Abraham. And, and you go, well, how, is this right? Is this something a, a son you know one son should take the son of another wife if he dies and so forth well it gets put into the law of moses in deuteronomy 25 this is what the law said to do later much later than this the younger brother was to produce an heir of the childless widow to ensure that the name of his dead brother and all his properties and belongings would be provided for, for this widow and perpetuate the family name. That was, that was what they did in society, and it ended up even in the Mosaic Law. And you go, well, is this good? Well, read Ruth and Boaz. This is exactly what takes place in Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz says, well, look, I'm not in the line here. You're, you're first. He goes to his uncle and says, uh, you've got to take her, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, mm, don't want her. And, of course, Boaz takes Ruth, and they produce um, the father to Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Now, Onan is condemned here, I believe, for his willful disobedience to his father Judah. And his humiliation of Tamar, she is now completely rejected. Not only rejected by the first son, now rejected publicly by the second son, and, and he is struck dead. And, and I want you to understand this text as you read 8 through 10. I don't think God strikes him dead for uh, distorted sexual behavior here because it, it is graphic in the text I think he strikes him dead for the disobedience to his father and the rejection of this woman and she is now left with no covering and there's, no only, there's only one thing left for her to do and you're going to see her engage in this this is a desperate time for Tamar third thought and, and I'm, I'm going to really try to tie some of this into to struggles that, that go on within Christianity and in, and in society as well. Third, flesh wins when God's will is rejected. Look at verses 11 through 15. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the, the wife of Judah, and here the word wife in, in the Hebrew could mean woman, female, or wife. So this woman that has produced these children, in other words, she dies. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, and he and his friend Hira the Dominite. And, 
And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So she removed her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him as, wife, as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now, this is an interesting section, of course, and, and there's no real record of these cities uh, or, or evidence where those cities were. They were small cities um, out in this grazing land. Um, and so I think the implications are is that Tamar was forced to leave uh, Adalna, where, where she was raised, and essentially had to go somewhere and hide herself out. This is probably an unknown small little village that she's hiding in. She has been disgraced. Uh, she has looked down on in every conceivable way. And, and so she's, she's damaged goods, in a sense. However, she was still under the control of Judah in some way. Uh, she had belonged to his son, as his oldest son as a wife, and she was expecting to marry. The whole goal was to marry the third-born son. But notice in the text, time passed by, and Shelah has grown, and there was no sense that Judah ever intended to marry his last son to her. And so here she is left out. She starts to realize this. And maybe Judah's going, well, I've lost two to this already. And maybe he just doesn't care anymore. This woman's life is destroyed because of these things. After Judah, Judah's wife or this woman dies, um, he, he decides to go to Timnah to work with his men and, who are shearing his sheep. And, and what's interesting, it's not hard to see this, Judah's now single, this woman's dead, and it's almost as you, he uses this getaway from family and all the stuff that goes on for some kind of sexual pleasure. He's sneaking away, in a sense. And the only way that Tamar can remove her societal rejection was to have a child in the line of Judah. That was her only way. She was, she was supposed to have that son. She was supposed to have that third-born son of his. And she's, she's marked. Now, now, there's no evidence that Tamar was in the faith in any, any way. And so using her Canaanite religion, she, she dresses like a temple prostitute. And this was common during the Canaanite festival activities. Canaanite harlots would, would set up tents along highways and, and, and they would offer their bodies as act of worship for hire. It was a common practice of the Canaanites. So, so Judah would have seen these prostitutes most of his life because they lived in the land of Canaan. He grew up in the land of Canaan. And Tamar clothed herself in such a way that Judah had no idea it was her. Look at verse 16 through 18. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Judah's impulsively 
is this impulsive behavior. And, and, and as you think about this, he's, his woman or wife or whatever she was has died, and, and doubtlessly he's trying to comfort himself in some kind of fornicating uh, relationship. It's just pagan and it's godless as can be. And, and, and although buying sex from roadside prostitutes was not a big deal in this culture of this day, leaving his family signet ring as a guarantee payment for this was absolutely foolish. And Tamar, she set her mind, she set her mind, you can see it in the text, to relieve herself of the disrespect. And, and, and Judah, he seemed to care little about the things of God, so you've got a mess here, right? You have a woman who's trying to get the, uh, the A off her, for better words, right? She's trying to get the mark of disrespect off of her. She's trying to, be, to do what, what culture says, to have a child and, and be dismissed from that. And Judah doesn't seem to care. He has not kept his word in any way. Verses 19 through 23. Then she arose and departed, and she removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Aldamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road of Imnam? And he said, There there has been no temple prostitute here. So we returned to Judah, and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, "Uh, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent the young goat, but you did not find her. Well, Tamar had had a plan, didn't she? And after she had committed this act with her father-in-law, she goes back, she returns to her mourning garments, doubtlessly probably black. And in verse 20, Judah here sends this pledge. He takes his goat through his uh, a Dominite friend here, and he, he sends it up there, but she can't find it. Verse 21, he searches. Verse 22, he reports back. I, I haven't been able to find her. And what's interesting in verse 23, Judah passes the whole incident off as unimportant, which really tells you the, uh, that this is why God recorded it. Judah thinks, well, this isn't important, but God did record this for us to know. And Tamar would have been greatly wronged by Judah who failed to rescue her from her disgrace. He did not follow through with with the custom of the day, and more importantly, did not follow through with his word that he had granted to her. And so she was left with terrible disgrace. Now, the problem is, he's left his signet ring, the cord that the signet ring hung on, And even more important, he leaves his tribal staff that identifies him to the household of Jacob. And this woman has this stuff. It was the pledge of the price uh, for this act. And, And man, the pledge was way more costly than what he received. But this is what happens to people who engage in sexual sin. They 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 do stupid things. Sin confuses them, and they, they get caught in stuff all the time and, and, and just destroys homes and marriages. And you go, well, what were you doing? I, I don't know. 
And the whole thing's a mess. And it's interesting, he has the, he gives away his signet ring. This is, this is, has a stamp on it that says, I'm from the, the house of Jacob. Here's my staff that marks who I am. This is stuff that really identifies you. And he says, I'll let her keep it. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a little bit like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup? I mean, doesn't that, you see where sin keeps going, where it does not care for the things of God? Things God has laid down, family heritage. There's just no concern for those things. Fourth thought, true character is always revealed. Look at verse 24 with me. Now it came about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Whew. Well, his behavior and his loss of his family signet ring meant little to Judah. But the fact that his daughter-in-law had become pregnant from working as a temple harlot meant a great deal to him. You see the hypocrisy of this? How dare her burn her. <laughs> see, people go into sexual sin and don't think there's people watching. And they forget God watches. And God sees all this stuff. And, and their thinking gets absolutely confused. So let's burn a woman whom I've lied to, whom I'm not protected like the custom would say, even though I've done such such horrible things myself. And so Judah's next statement really exposes his heart. He says, bring her out and let's burn her. I mean, this is a harsh death sentence. Even in the Canaanite world, this was way beyond what they would do. Later in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 21.9, one like this would be burned. It says that if a priest, the daughter of a priest would become a temple prostitute, she was to be burned. So there was precedent for this, but he was not a priest, and he was not acting as God would have him act. Notice verse 25 and 26. It was while she was being brought out, you could see this scene, the gossip has flown, they're dragging this woman out, that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child, she's played her cards right here, hasn't she? I am with child by the woman to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet rings and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. And as much as I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not have relationship with her again. Tamar's plan is exposed, and so is the wickedness of Judah. His own confession condemns himself and, and really exonerates his daughter-in-law. And, and you go, well, man, I'm not a big fan of Tamar and what she did. Um, remember, she's not in the faith. She's not, this is a Canaanite woman. This is someone who is, is going through the societal norms that have been just shaken. She's, she's marked. The only thing left for her would have been prostitution. And, and here, here's, here's Judah, whose dad has spoken with God, has wrestled with God, who, who has, they certainly knew the promise to the family. 
And yet he acts in such a godless behavior. Look at verses 27 through 30. And it came about at the time she was giving birth. Isn't this amazing? That behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back in his hand that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zara. Now, Tamar becomes a single mother at this time. She probably remains under Judah's protection, I would imagine. From this incestuous relationship, she gives birth to twins and is very, very similar to Jacob and Esau, isn't it? And Esau came out first, but Jacob grabbed his heel and and was chosen to be the heir and father of the 12 sons of Israel. In Tamar's cave, Zerah emerges first, but is surpassed by Perez. It's interesting. Who becomes the ancestor, think about this, the ancestor of King David and is recorded in all the genealogical lines of Christ. Despite the wickedness of man, I want you to get this, God continues to protect and bring about the promised seed of the line of Judah. And you can go look, go study the genealogy all, all through the Old Testament right up to the birth of Christ and you will find Perez in there over and over and over again. And you go, that all came from just blah. <laughs> and yet God was in this. And so we realize it does not depend on man, but it depends upon God. And, and we're so grateful for this as we think about this. And then, just to sum that out as we move into 39, never do God's people get to him through their own righteousness. And if, that, if this does not help you understand that, I don't know what does. This is the pure mercy of God upon wicked, godless people. And there's a baby now who ends up in the line of Christ. Now, number five, the story continues <laughs> five living in a culture of sex lies and deception you think well no we're gonna get back to joseph good old righteous joseph maybe things will get better well hang on chapter 39 as genesis this great recording here returns back to the story of joseph we find him being sold into slavery right verse one now joseph had been taken down to egypt and potiphar an Egypt, egyptian officer of pharaoh the captain of the bodyguard bought him from the ishmaelites who had taken him down there so we move right from horrible sexual sin into slavery and you go well isn't slavery wrong how can god have a part of this if you witness a lot to people who know a little bit of the bible they always attack this stuff constantly And our response is the same. Sin is man's fault. (laughs) And God is recording the depth of the wickedness of man to show the greatness of his mercy. This is man. He doesn't change. 
thousands and thousands of years later, he's going to be doing the same thing, going over to Africa and taking men, women, and children and robbing them from their, their families and putting them on boats, whether they live or die, they don't care, and bringing them to the new, the new Americas to sell them. Man's wicked. He's wicked to the core. But grace and mercy of God is greater in the fallen world. And the Bible just accurately records the death of man's sins here in the greatness of God's mercy. But notice in verse 1, this verse provides some much-needed information to understand what's going on in this passage. It is clear that Potiphar's a wealthy man, isn't it, by verse 1? And doubtlessly, you think about his position, he had the priority and he had the oversight because of his position of security of what came into Egypt. So he used that to get the best things. So here he is, probably in a position. Here comes this Mennonite uh, group working their way in there. He sees this young, strapping, good-looking 17-year-old, and he's first. he gets to buy first, and he takes him as his slave. And the text reminds us, as you read it, that he had many servants, and, and he had a, a, an amazing status of wealth. Notice also it says he's a captain of the bodyguard. This lets us into a little more information about Potiphar here. This means he most likely oversaw all security issues to the king, including the prison probably Joseph will be thrown in here. He's probably oversight over that. So he's extremely close to Pharaoh, the world leader. This, is, this guy is he's going to be the world leader, and it's coming soon. He's going to run the world. But there's one more phrase in this passage that really intrigued me and helped me understand this a little more. Um, notice it says an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh. So I didn't know what that meant. And I, I, I honestly learned this studying this text. Well, it's the Hebrew word saris. And the word means eunuch. We translate it officer, but everywhere it's used in, throughout the Bible and in a lot of extra biblical material always refers to eunuch. Now, I want you to think through this because this might help us understand some of the things that are going on with Mrs. Potiphar. Those serving close to Pharaoh were often made eunuchs. There was a medical procedure that was done to protect the king's wives from being impregnated by those who had access to him, and very few people did have access to him, but those who did, <laughs> ooh, they had to protect those bloodlines. And so in most cases, this procedure would allow a man to perform sexual, sexually, but it would take away his desires and his ability to produce children, and so he could be around the king's uh, uh, wives and not affect the bloodlines of Pharaoh and keep his children his. Now notice verse, now you've thought about that, notice now we'll think about maybe what the home life may have been. That helps you understand some things. Two through four. The Lord was with Joseph. This is a very important point. He says this four times in the passage. The Lord was with Joseph. 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 I love repetition because I go, oh, God wants me to know something. It helps you when you study. The Lord is with Joseph. Now notice this. So he became a successful man. Time's going by here. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. Now it's unclear whether Potiphar knew Joseph's backstory, right? And 
actually who his father was and how he arrived to Egypt doesn't seem like he knows that. But Potiphar being the head of security and probably the chief military officer doubtlessly knew a good man when he saw one, right? So Potiphar was clearly wealthy by description of the items he puts Joseph over. And and Potiphar's job was to uh, keep... Uh, he gives he gives Joseph Potiphar gives Joseph the job of taking care of his estate, to take care of all these things. Now, being a leader, Potiphar was quick to recognize the characters and characteristics and abilities of Joseph, and I think Jacob did too. I went back and thought about that. Joseph had some favoritism. Remember, we talked about this that the favoritism that Jacob might have put on Joseph is because he had had those dreams. It's a strong possibility that's why Jacob favored Joseph, because God was communicating through him. And yet, Jacob also saw the righteousness of Jacob, I mean, of Joseph. And so he would often send him, go check on the boys, go check on the brothers, bring back a report. He gave him that oversight. So I think Potiphar notices this in him because he's a righteous young man. He's doing what's right, and he, he's now exalted to this position over the things that Potiphar has. But more important, notice in verse 3, and this is a very important point, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. Now, four times it tells us in the text that God was with him, um, and, and that's important. And, and I thought about this as I was studying this. I said, Lord, how often do I ask you to be with us? I think that's real important. I, I, our, as we as elders pray this all the time, Lord, you've got to come and help us with this. You gotta be here, Lord. We don't want to do this without you. <laughs> we need that. That's the way we pray before we preach. Lord, I don't want to stand in that pulpit without you. My words will just fall off the end of the, uh, the pulpit. Please, Lord, be with us. And, and I think that's something we should pray for. Lord, be with us. But you give him something to bless. And I think Joseph did. And I think Joseph had a religious reputation in a good sense. And, and he was known for being capable. And, he was, and, and think about this. He was faithful. And Potiphar saw this. And, and doubtlessly he openly worshipped Yahweh and was well known at, at least for, for this worship of his God and there was a respect for that now some of the commentaries I read on this uh, they said well maybe it's possible that Potiphar equated Joseph's relationship with Yahweh with Ra which would have been the the Egyptian sun god, the all-powerful sun god, and, and equated that in some way because, again, this is a pagan man. But whatever the case was, Potiphar had a deep respect for Joseph and his love for his God. Now notice verse 5 and 6. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. This man's very wealthy. Verse six, so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and, when, and, and with him there he, uh, excuse me, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now five and six here remind us of the character of Joseph, and he's given him everything. He has oversight over all things. Just one little phrase I want to deal with just real quick. He says, except for food that he ate. What was that about? Um, well, two possibilities. One, I th- think it's, I probably lean towards this a little bit. I think he's saying, 
everything but my personal stuff. He doesn't have to put the fork in the food and give it to me. I can take care of that. But everything else he does. Possibly that's what he's looking at. There, there is one other thought in Genesis 43, 43, 32. You remember when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers and they had the big feast. And the Bible says the Egyptians would not eat with them because the Hebrews, were their eating habits were loathsome to them. So it could be something like that. There's something about Egypt. Egyptians not like to eat with Hebrews. I, I'm not sure what that's all about. We'll look at that more when we get there. But that's interesting, and I think what the text is saying, there wasn't anything that Joseph did not oversee. Notice verse 7, the soap opera begins, and it came about after these events, that his master's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now, adultery was wrong in, in Egyptian culture. We need to understand that. But nonetheless, it was very common among the wealthy. And so this scene described in chapter 39 was probably very common. And this may have not been the first time that Mrs. Potiphar had engaged in adulterous affairs. She seems to know what she's doing. Now, added to this, as we said earlier, Potiphar is most likely a eunuch. (laughs) And that could have some very difficult problems in the home life you may we may not all understand that but I uh, I I think if we put this into a context of today and start to think about this you may not run into Mrs. Potiphar but I'll tell you what most people are one click away from pornography today and so this is a this is a, a very intense situation she, she is doing everything you, she can do, you'll see this in the text, to seduce Joseph. And you say, well, that's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to be a servant in someone's house. But sexual sin is massive. So this is why we ran the seminar in our life seminars, um, you know, pornography, uh, purity in a porn-saturated world. I think Pastor Brian's teaching that. It's, it is a massive problem. It's a massive problem in counseling. It, it's a massive problem with men and women. We, we constantly deal with it in counseling. And, and, it's, and you may not have a Potiphar's wife in your life, but, but today it is, it is, it's right there. It's, it's on every TV show. It's, it's on your phone. It's, it's everywhere. And, and this is difficult. And you, and you start to see this scene that's taking place, and you begin to see these sinful desires and sexuality that's, that's just ripe for disaster here. And, and it's so true today. And marriage is hurt over this. And, and when, when marriages aren't right with each other and they're not right with God, that trickles down into, into the children. The children don't have parents that are right with God, and so God is confusing to them. And this just digresses into just terrible family life. And it's dangerous. If... I, I don't know how much you're used to talking about sex in church, but sex is this beautiful thing that God gave to a husband and wife. And when husbands and wives walk with God, it is a, it is a magnificent blessing from God. And in fact, I would go as far as saying this, that it's a direct reflection of how you're walking with God in some ways. Uh, C.J. Uh, Mahaney wrote a book called... Uh, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. Has anybody ever read that? It's an excellent little book. It will really challenge you 
to realize how important that we handle intimacy that God has given us. And husbands and wives, when you walk with the Lord, everything in your marriage is strengthened. When a husband loves Christ and a wife loves Christ and you love the word and you keep yourself under the word of God and you you protect your mind and, and you fight for purity, everything gets better in the marriage. Everything. And, and we study this and you go, wow, there's back-to-back chapters of just, yeah. Well, why is it here? Because it's a problem. It's still a problem in today's society, even within the Christian church. And so it's, it's, you have to slow down and you have to think about this and realize how destructive this is. It gets worse. Number six here in our notes, righteousness that can stand in a sinful culture. Because you go, oh, this is bad, but, but let's look what happens here. Look at verses eight through 10. But he, that's Joseph, refused. She's throwing herself at him. And Mrs. Potiphar's probably not some, you know, backyard dog. If she was ugly, she had the money to make herself pretty. <laughs> right? It doesn't take you long to see, you know, that people with money can get pretty. Right? So this is not just, this is a difficult, this is, she's, she's probably a looker at some level. But he refuses her and said to his master's wife, now listen to this, behold with me, here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Here, right here. And he has put all things under my charge. There is no one greater in his house than I. And he has, he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Boy, God's law of husbands and wife has never changed, has it? And they're, they're messing with it now in our culture. Do you think God is very happy about this? I mean, this is just so clear, isn't it? And then, he, then he goes on to say, except you, uh, end of nine, how then could, oh, how could I do this great evil oh, and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. And he did not listen to her to lie with, beside her or with her. So Joseph here refuses her. And I like this. Because this shows that people who love God can refuse sin. And Joseph, he had heard from God. He clearly believed in him. He, he, and you can notice in the text here that between those who believe the word of God and those who don't, you can see the difference, right? Judah, Judah had heard about the words of God, but he didn't care. Joseph's brothers were murderers and immoral, but Joseph's faith was in Yahweh, and it motivated his righteousness. He's not being righteous because he's trying to gain the favor of Yahweh. The favor of Yahweh is impressing upon him his righteousness, Right? So, so I said this earlier, what we believe about Christ and his word dictates our behavior. And Joseph believed in God. And his righteousness helped him through this very sinful temptation that was in this immoral culture. And I say this over and over, sin is defeated through the love of Christ and the love of his word. And if you come in for counseling from any of this pastoral staff, elders, anyone you sit with, we are going to say that over and over. The only way you're going to solve your marriage struggles is love Christ and his word. 
And yes, we'll work through some things and help practically and go through steps and communication and all of those things. But when it comes down, when the rubber meets the road, if you don't love Christ and his word and let it get in deeply into you, you'll never solve your marriage issues. And you'll pass them on to your children. And that's what happens. That's what sin does. And I love this, that Joseph said, look, I can't do this. Notice what Joseph does. He, he attempts to diffuse this situation. He's gentle in it. He's diplomatic in the way he handles this. He says, look, my master trusts me. The master's put everything under my charge. I hold the highest position here. You're, you're the one thing that's off limit. You're his wife. He, he, he sees the value of marriage. And he saves the last the best for last, he says, and it's a sin against God. It's a sin against God. Brothers and sisters, I think what's most disturbing in the ministry is most every time when somebody's committed adultery and they come into our office and they're found out about it, they are pushing us to justify what they've done. And as pastors, it's so difficult because we go, there's no justification for this. And yet you're constantly, this happens within our own families at times, we have to deal with this stuff. They, they want to justify everything. And you have to say, wait a minute. There's no justification for this. Think about David as Psalms 51 says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transactions. Wash me thoroughly with my, uh, of my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's a confession. That's a confession. And, and what happens is this isn't done, and so it's always blame shift. Well, she doesn't do this, and he doesn't do that, and I did this because of that. In 30-plus years of ministry, I had one man walk into my office. He walked in my office, sat on a chair, began to cry, and fell on his face in front of my desk. I had to look over my desk and say, what's wrong? And he poured his heart out of an adulterous affair, and he says, I'm a sinner, and God's watched every bit of it. I'm here to repent. I need accountability. I need to go to my wife and tell her the truth. And we did it together. And, I mean, and that marriage was rescued through it. It took a long time. It was a lot of work. But God rescued that marriage. But most people walk into your office and say, you don't know what I live with. And this and that. And on and on and on and on. Uh, am I clear here? There is absolutely no justification for adultery. In any shape or form. And David could have said, oh look, man, I was promised a kingdom. Samuel came and poured oil on my head. And I've been chased around by Saul. Everybody was trying to kill me. I'm living out in the wilderness with 400 stinky guys living in a cave. I try to help a guy out and he tries to kill me. And I mean, just a mess. Do you see any of that in Psalm 51? My sin is against you and you alone, God. That's repentance. Confess. Confess says, I own this. Repentance stops the train from going into the Grand Canyon and starts to back it up to where we make the right choices in life. And so, if, you're in, if anyone is in sexual sin, confess it and repent of it. Blame no one. And do everything you can to be right with those who affected it, you have affected in your sin. 
And, and you see this, and it's just clear in this. So verse 10, notice Joseph carefully, righteously rejects Mrs. Potiphar here and all her solicitations, and, and, but she doesn't stop. It doesn't stop her. She just keeps going. Notice that she just keeps after him. Notice the phrase, day after day. And I think this is a reminder, friends, of the relentlessness of sin. It is relentless. It will come after you, and you either stand firm in your faith and resist the devil and his tricks and his sin, or he'll overtake you. And so we resist him. And so the answer is stop listening to sin in your flesh. Run away from that stuff, and that's what Joseph will do. Seven, righteous behavior does not always receive earthly justice. You hear that? Righteous behavior does not always receive earthly justice. Look at this as we're running out of time quickly here. Verse 11. Then, uh, where did I go? Now it happened one day when he went out into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. And he left his garment in the hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and, he, and, and had fled outside, she called to the men of a household and said to them, See, he has brought a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. Ooh, she's blaming somebody here, right? He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard, uh, when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now Joseph has gone about doing his job faithfully. But this wicked woman was waiting for him, wasn't he? And sin is opportunistic, isn't it? It lies in the weeds. It waits. And Peter reminds us, be sober in spirit, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking for someone to devour. And doubtlessly, she probably had her hand to this arranged for the house to be emptied out. This lioness was about ready to pounce. Joseph's walking with God. He's alerted to it. He flees from this sin. And, and note, this is the second good jacket he's lost. thinking, man, this guy's out of jackets. And, and, and every time, it's because of a sinful situation. His brother's trying to kill him the last time, and they ruin him with goat blood. This one now Mr. Potiphar has. But Second Timothy says now, Paul says to Timothy, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace for those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. That's a great description of Joseph. He ran. He ran. Men, run. The stuff wants to destroy your marriage. Run from it. The cost of obedience sometimes involves unjust punishment, doesn't it? Peter reminds the church, he says, for it is, it is better if God so will it that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. This is Joseph, and in Joseph's case, he's accused of an attempted rapist, Right? And she's got an alibi. She's got an empty house. She's got the coat. She pounces, man. She's the lioness. Then she invents this lie and, and she publicly confronts her husband. 
while passing some of the blame on him. The Hebrew you brought in here, you can see this lets into their marriage, doesn't it? This is not a marriage that probably is full of love. Finally, doing, doing time with Yahweh. <laughs> the end of this, verse 19 through 23. Now, when the master heard of the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. He wasn't happy about it. So Joseph's master took him and put him in jail, the place where the prisoners, the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21, third time it says it, and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, fourth time. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So here, Mrs. Potiphar's attempt of seduction combined with the reaction of this powerful eunuch of Pharaoh's kingdom indicates that there was probably, this was probably more of a political marriage and it was without true love. It lacked what God intended for husbands and wives to have. It's very clear that this was not a good marriage. But this was... Um, it's just a very calculated offense that she had. Um, and in the end, Joseph is put into prison. It's unjust. But I wrote in the notes here in this point, doing time with Yahweh. <laughs> doing time with Yahweh. Because even though you may stand for right and you've run from, you've run from sexual sin or, or uh, lust of anything, lust of money, lust of of houses or lust of whatever you've run from those things sometimes sometimes there's those out to get you it's quite possible Potiphar knew his wife was at the bottom of this affair <laughs> it's interesting because he should have executed Joseph there's nothing in the history of Egypt or these cultures that his head would not be taken off for this. He's just a slave anyway, bought for a few shekels or whatever the money was back then. He wasn't worth much. And yet, he gets put into a prison. I think this is the best possible punishment, and God was in this. But Joseph's back in a hole again, isn't he? He started off in a hole, got sold, and now he's back in a hole again. But this time... This time, the Lord is with him, as usual. The prison was probably the king's prison, and it was most likely run by Potiphar. He's head of security. He's overseeing this. The prisoners were probably political, and they're probably more white-collar crime, I would imagine, in this. But the most important statement in this verse, the Lord was with him two times. He says that. And once again, Yahweh blesses Joseph because he's living for God. He knows there's a God. He believes there's a God, and it's affecting his behavior. Did you catch that? It's affecting his behavior. And pretty soon he's running the prison. He's a leader. He was a leader for, with Jacob. He was a leader with Potiphar. And now he's a leader in the jail. And the last words, look at the last words of verse 23. Whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Ian Bounds said this. I read this recently. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. We run DTP classes, we counsel, we, we're trying to disciple people and help them grow. But ultimately, it's God's looking for better men. Men that allow God to dictate their behavior. Allow his word to, 
to burden them to live for him. Not because you have to, but because you get to. Because God saved you. And the questions that I put before you, both men and women, because, because sexual sin is not just in the male role anymore. It is, uh, in the world, it's, it, it's so close now with the adultery that's happening between men and women, it's almost identical now. And in the church, we're seeing that almost the same as well. And so I would ask you, if you're in sin in any way, confess it, repent of it. Be reconciled with those in your life. Be right with all people. Do whatever it takes. Let the gospel dictate your your life, not your flesh. It's possible. If you truly know God, you can flee from this stuff. And you can have joy in a marriage and joy in relationships, joy in dating, joy in friendships. All of that is possible in Christ if you let the gospel drive you versus our flesh. Father, Uh, These these texts are deep, Lord, and they're revealing. And Lord, there's not a perfect person in this room. We're just perfectly saved. And so there are battles, Lord, that we face. The lust isn't always in the sexual world. It's maybe in the financial world. It may be in envy of what the neighbor has. And yet, our world is polluted with pornography. It's taken the beauty of marriage and desecrated it. We have to live in that, Lord. The temptations are strong at times for men and women. Sin doesn't get repented of. It doesn't get turned from. and, And so it begins to build and strengthen in lives and in marriages. And love is lost and... The foundations of the home are etched away. And so, Lord, repentance is the key. Let us be like David when we sin. May we say that we have sinned in the eyes of God. He watched our sin. And our offense is against him. And so, Lord, may we as Christians, when we fall, when we sin, repent. And that means turn from it, Lord. There's no hope, Lord, without that. Sin's designed to kill and break and destroy things, Lord. But Jesus, you're greater. We sing tonight, your mercy is more. And so may we fall on your mercy as David did in Psalms 51, as Joseph did as he fled and ran into your merciful arms, knowing that he would go to prison for this or die. So may we be like Joseph, like David, men and women, who let the gospel dictate our behavior. Lord, use this message in all of our lives tonight, Lord. And we walk with you with with righteousness that we gain from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.